In this episode, we delve into the oldest defensive system, the freeze response. My name is Justin Sinceri, licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome to episode four of the Polyvagal Podcast. I wanted to start off by just doing a very quick, big, big, big thank you to those that are helping out to spread the word about the Polyvagal Podcast. And there's a bunch of you, and I'm just so appreciative of that. Um, so thank you for helping me spread the word uh, by just by sharing with people that you're enjoying it or that you're listening and sharing the link to the show and everything like that. So thank you so much. Um, for those of you that are subscribing on iTunes or wherever, thank you. And leaving reviews, thank you. So I, I, it's just it's super humbling and extremely encouraging as well. It just makes me want to do more. So this episode is going to be another, this is going to be, I think, the most sensitive one that I've done so far. The first one was about safety, and that I, th- I thought you guys could tolerate that. Third one was about uh, flight and fight, and we got a little bit more iffy there. Hopefully everyone's okay listening to that. But this one, this is the one I'm worried about. It's about the freeze response, and this is really, in many ways, the heart of trauma. So if, you, if you're a survivor of trauma, you have to put yourself first, Please. You can, you can break this up into little pieces. Listen when, as you're ready to. You don't have to listen to all at once. Okay, this is, this is my concern. Um, I'm going to have some resources in the show notes for like crisis calls. Um, uh, just anything I think might be helpful, I'll throw in there. But please put yourself first. I did this presentation. I did a short version of the presentation, and it went fine. It was like 20 minutes. And uh, it was just a very brief overview of the polyvagal theory. But I did a more in-depth presentation. It was a three-hour one, and we had more time to go into um, all these different states, just like I've been doing. And when we got here, this is where um, everyone seemed to handle it in the audience. There was like 40 people there, but everyone seemed to handle it okay. But there was a woman in the back, back corner. She was wearing an orange like jacket or something like that. And this is where I noticed that I had lost her. So everyone else was really, actually really enjoying it. But there was one person that I saw was just kind of checked out. Her her head was down on the ground, on the, on the ground, on the table. Her head was on the table, and she didn't look up for like the last hour, maybe. And I knew, I knew what she was going through, but I couldn't stop the presentation and call attention to it at all. I don't know. I just it just didn't. I, you know, I wanted to reach out and help somehow, but I wasn't able to. And then on, on after the presentation, I was hoping to flag her down, but I, I wasn't able to. Um, so yeah, that's, um, I I think most people will be just fine, but if you're a trauma survivor, this is, it's difficult stuff. I do the best I can to handle this respectfully, nothing super shocking, but just by the nature of it, it's going to get a little bit more difficult. Let's talk about real quick. Um, and this is something I want to encourage everyone to do is look back on your week and I want you to pick your ventral vagal moment. We I haven't named all these things, but ventral vagal, this is the safety state. This it, it utilizes the ventral vagal, um, what do you call it? Uh, cranial nerve, I believe it is. Um, I may be wrong about that, but I believe that's the right wording for it. But basically, it's what's your safe and social state for the for the week. Um, from there's a couple. I, I I have one right with both my kids. It involves both of them. Um, watching my kids eat a pop tart is is a big ventral vagal moment for me. My son, his eyes like roll back in his head. He just way gets into it. My daughter, when she eats it, my son's three. When my daughter, when she eats a Pop-Tart, she's nine, almost eh, coming up on 10. 
when she eats it, she eats the crust all the way around it and saves the middle part the, with the frosting and the jelly stuff in the middle. She saves that for the end. So watching them eat a Pop-Tart is, is just so peaceful. It's very enjoyable. It's, it's, that's my ventral vagal, <laughs> ventral vagal safe and social moment that just kind of keeps being this like, it just feels good to watch them. I, I like doing that. So our topic here, like I said, is the freeze response. This is the shutdown response. Um, this is another sympath- uh, parasympathetic branch, just like the safe and social mode is parasympathetic. Um, mo- the mobilization state from last time is sympathetic. The shutdown mode is actually parasympathetic. This is, um, this is a, I think, the oldest defensive system from uh, early vertebrates. So I'm going to start off this by doing three music clips. I, I like doing these. These are fun. Three music clips. Now, what I want you to do is to listen with your body now, with your ears. I want you to just notice how you feel, okay? Listen with your body, not with your ears. So the first one here, are you ready? Here we go. How did that make you feel? Was that more of a bop or a sway? Did you feel safe and comfortable or did you feel like fighting or running away? <laughs> um, let's do the next one here. They see me rolling, they hating, patrolling and trying to kiss me riding dirty. 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 All right, how about that one? Did you feel more of a bop or more of a sway? Did you feel safe and cozy or... Um, I don't know, more uh, riled up there. Just notice it. I will do one more here. All right. So let's let's talk about these three real quick. I'll I'll show I'll share with you uh, my experience of these. The first one. Let's real quick. Let's hear it again. Just a, just a second. For me, this is safe and social. I feel very just cozy in Mr. Rogers' arms. Second one, this is uh, Riding Dirty. I'm sure you knew that already. They see me rolling. They hate it. That is, of course, from Chameleon Air. Uh, that one gets me going a little bit more. So that'd be more of the sympathetic. If I was uh, needing some energy, I'd listen to that. And the last one, Beethoven's. Moonlight Sonata. So this one is for me, this is my, now my body doesn't freeze, but what, I, what I'll tell you is when I listen to this, I feel something in my gut. I, I, list, I hear this in my gut. Um, there's something about this, especially right at the beginning there, that something about it just pulls me down. I feel my entire, I guess, like nervous system is being pulled down. Let's do it one more time here. So listen with your belly, all right? Listen with your belly, with your chest. Yeah, there's something that when I hit that that first note, when it hits, that I feel it and I, it just reverberates in my belly. So I, and that's that's where the um, this branch lives is it's it's in your belly. So that that's that I think it's why it hits me down there. I can really feel it. So the biology of shutdown. This is a state that we enter when we can't run away, we can't fight, 
or the size differential is too great. So if we're in a situation where we can't run away, we can't fight, or the size differential like the person that we're or the thing that we are in danger from is just too big, or I think it's also include or actually does include if we're with someone who um, their status is too big and we we are feel overpowered. So uh, there's a freeze or a collapse, a dissociation, an immobilization, or like a playing dead kind of thing. Not not obviously not playing dead, but you know playing possum that kind of thing. There's a massive drop in uh, blood pressure and heart rate, and because of this drop in heart rate. In uh, blood pressure, there's less blood going to the brain, and this leads to the feeling of dissociation, which is kind of feeling like you're out of your body, or like you're floating above your body, um, or somewhere you know right above your head. That's because there's less blood, less oxygen getting to the brain, so it, it results in this feeling of dissociation. There's also something that occurs during shutdown called apnea, which is a temporary, uh, like you basically stop breathing for a little bit. Um, if you've heard of sleep apnea. It's a very serious reduction in how often you're breathing. I have sleep apnea, apparently, my wife tells me. Um, and I got tested for it and everything. I wear a mask at nighttime to make sure that I'm, you know, having um, air forced into my lungs all night. But it's, you know, you stop breathing and it's extremely serious. So in shutdown mode, the, the, the biology of shutdown is that our, our, um, our breathing is drastically reduced. Not just our, but not just for human beings. In shutdown mode, um, we are, or movement is inhibited, which means that there's less need for food because our, our metabolism has gone down. Our pain threshold goes up. We're able to tolerate more pain. Uh, there's like a numbing effect. And like I said before, this system is located below the heart and the diaphragm. This is like when you get those feelings in your gut, like this is what's going on. There's, there's that, that This system is being triggered. It doesn't mean you're actually being frozen, but think about this, these moments where maybe you, like, there's something just, something's like um, not right. You know, you, you get a feeling in your gut and it's kind of like a twinge, like a little, uh, like a twist or a spike in your gut. At least that's how I feel it. So that it's, I, I believe it's, that's what the, that's the system that's telling you like something's not right here. So this state of being in shutdown allows us to get through the potential, not just us, but all any animals, to get through the potential ending of life with very little pain. That's kind of the benefit of it, with very little pain because we're numb. We're numb and the, and, and the uh, blood pressure has dropped so significantly. So there's very, very little pain. Numbness allows us also to escape because if we're in pain and, and we had to feel it, it would slow us down. So if, if an opening arises where we're able to escape from whatever situation it is, the numbness will help us to, to do so. If we're able to break free that we're numb, we'll be able to like, you know, take off. Um, dissociation allows for also a quicker escape because we're, we've basically, we haven't, even though we've physically survived the moment that we've gone into shutdown, we've dissociated. So we don't exactly remember it. Um, if, and if we had to remember it and be conscious of it, we might not be able to escape. So, you know, and, and this is super um, common in trauma survivors is that their memory of the event is extremely fragmented. It's not like a continuous memory of what happened. It's bits and pieces. And that's because of dissociation. So th that dissociation is built into us as a way to help us to escape the situation in case we ever, you know, get the opportunity to escape. There's, there's a direct 
beneficial impact on the chances of survival and shutdown mode. Because you, if you think about it, shutting down, like how does that help us survive? Well, it helps us to reduce pain. That you know, but that's not. It doesn't really help us. Well, I guess it does help us survive because if our pain's reduced, and our memory is not stuck on the event because of dissociation, there's a direct impact. Like we, there's a better chance we can escape the situation. But what I want you to really take from this is this is a survival instinct. It's survival instinct. It's a hundred percent normal. It is a hundred percent normal reaction, and an expected reaction to a situation that someone may need to simply get through. So explaining this seems crucial, and, um, and potentially it's an immediate relief and an avenue of hope Be- because the reaction to the event begins to make sense. This is something I think that survivors are desperate for. This, when, I, when I talk about this with my, um, the students that I meet with, um, Having this explanation, there's a moment of like, oh, and they, and they, all of a sudden what they went through was, is normalized and that has a big impact. So this is, no, it's not, this is not an explanation for like, why me? So that question comes up a lot. Why me? I, it's not an explanation for that. Um, it's not, it's not an explanation for why someone did what they did, but it's a big piece of the puzzle and I think it can help to reduce the impact of shame, which which seems to come along with um, shutdown and surviving trauma. And I think I'll talk about shame um, the next episode. Animals, like I said, all animals, it's not that it's a human thing, this is all animals, um, go through shutdown in, in certain situations. And this, this I'm going to just kind of describe what it looks like. Uh, odd posture, um, emitting, and I'll, I'll have a, a, a link to a video that kind of goes through all this. It's an animated thing from, uh, I think it's Ted. Um, odd posture, uh, emitting a foul-smelling odor from anal glands, sticking out their tongue. It's really, you know, plain dead. Um, this, this, but this, this, the smell, the posture, the tongue sticking out. This disgusts the predator. It it makes because the predator sees this as dead, as a dead prey, as um, a corpse. And a corpse to a predator is actually a cue of danger. This may have evolved um, for the predator to avoid a corpse, which might carry, I don't know, like bacteria or something like that. So seeing a corpse for a predator and eating it may actually uh, be a risk to their safety. So they may have evolved an aversion to this. That seems to make sense. Um, the benefit, one of the benefits, there's a few benefits that I was, as I was in research, I was pretty shocked at. There's a few benefits to to the shutdown mode. One of them is, let's say there's a herd uh, running away from, or even a small herd running away from a predator. If one of them plays dead, the predator will chase after the ones that are still running. It will bypass the one that's playing dead. It will ignore the corpse. So it's sad, but by by sacrificing your neighbors, you have a better chance of living if you, if you go into shutdown mode. Um, there's also something... Um, where, I don't know what it's called, but like, you know, a cat that carries its young, it, it bites it by the back of the neck. The the kitten that's in, that's being carried goes into this sort of like shutdown mode. It, it's still awake. It's still okay. But it, it makes it a lot easier to carry around. Or shutdown mode can also be used for by predators. There was an example I saw online of a fish <clears throat> that goes into shutdown mode. And when, a, when its prey comes by, it basically snaps out of it 
lunges and catches the, the prey. So shutdown mode can be used in that way as well by certain species. Animals um, come out of this state in a short manner of time, a short period of time. They, they aren't stuck in it. Uh, and then what they can do is look for cues of safety while they're basically, while I mean, they're not, they're not unconscious. While they're dissociative or in shutdown mode, they can still look for cues of safety. Um, and all kinds of animals do this, like sharks do it, uh, chickens, possums do it, mice, flower beetles, hundreds, like hundreds of animals, tons of them. Um, you, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen a cat carrying a mouse in its, in its um, mouth. The mouse isn't necessarily dead. It, it might be playing uh, dead. It might be in shutdown mode. And when the cat puts it down, that presents an opportunity if the cat's distracted enough for the mouse to run away, to, to go up into its sympathetic nervous system and, and run away. So all these things, I mean, all these um, different animals I've listed and everything, you can go onto YouTube and you can, you can see examples of a chicken being forced into shutdown mode. It's it's kind of hard to watch because with a chicken, for some reason, you, you have to make its head point down and draw a straight line in front of it, and it'll go into this like shutdown mode. Um, there's a video of this cute little girl who was on um, some Steve Harvey show, I think it was Steve Harvey, and she was putting these five different animals, I think one was a chicken, one was a dog, <clears throat> into shutdown, or rabbit, into shutdown mode by flipping them over. And she called it hypnotizing them, but really they're going into shutdown mode. But you can find examples of this stuff online. Um, there's a really neat one of a shark being put into shutdown mode by a diver who rubs the front of its um, like nose area, um, and it goes into shutdown mode. And it stays like that for like 10, 15 minutes, and then it swims off and it's fine. Shutdown mode in animals is different than what I think we experience as human beings. It's the same function, and I think it's um, yeah, I think the same function, but with human beings, we don't usually just go into shutdown mode. Usually, it's forced upon us, and we don't have a clear exit from shutdown mode either. But point being here, let's let's go back a couple steps. Point being, shutdown is a survival instinct that's built in there from evolution. Um, sh- but shutdown plus fear. This is the essence of trauma, of one avenue of trauma at least. And I'll, I'll talk about this in a lot more detail. I think next time we'll talk about some uh, how trauma, the actual mechanisms of trauma and shame as well for next time. But so humans in shutdown mode, we, um, if we can't use socialization, if we can't run away, if we can't fight, shutdown is a state that we go into as a last resort. Um, this happens when, well, there's a number of paths, I guess, but if we're physically overpowered from sexual abuse or physical abuse or being kidnapped, being held hostage, um, war, um, the, you know, these are definite avenues to shut down. Um, emotional abuse can also be an avenue to shut down as well. It's something we can't avoid, can't fight back. And eventually, especially, you know, I've heard this from my clients many, many times, in homes of emotional abuse that they eventually just sort of give up and become numb to the situation. It's not really a choice. It just sort of happens. Um, I see a lot of various traumas with, with clients. Um, but let's, let's stick with emotional trauma for a moment. Uh, Many, many teens that I've worked with and still am working with, they're just, I hate to put it this way, but they're just kind of done with their parents. They're just done. 
they are actively like they are actively working on how to emotionally separate from their parents because it's so painful. This is not like I know kids are naturally supposed to um, individuate from their parents. It's a it's a natural developmental milestone. But there are I'm working with kids that are choosing like I I my you know my mom is so whatever, I have to emotionally separate from her to keep my sanity. To and really it's to avoid going to shutdown. It's at that point it's they're they're aware of it enough and how what an what an impact is taken on them that they are they're saying I have to separate from my mom or dad emotionally, even though I live with them, I have to emotionally separate from them so that I can keep my sanity really. There's the daily experience of being in shutdown mode um, is a lot of numbness, being hopeless, uh, feeling abandoned or lonely, being foggy, tired, colder due to the poor blood circulation. And um, what's interesting is it's not cold like your skin is cold, like the air is cold. It's, it's cold internally. And um, people can, when I talk about this with the clients, they will... And I, I don't even cue them on this. They'll tell me I feel cold, like I feel cold inside. Um, they might feel like a pressure on your chest, lots of avoiding eye contact. Because there's this feeling of like wanting to hide, um, which is different than sympathetic arousal where you're looking for danger. Your, your eyes are scanning for danger. The eyes are scanning, but they're not making eye contact exactly. Not safe, gentle eye contact, at least in sympathetic mode, like last, we talked about last time. But in, in this shutdown mode, the eyes are looking more downward. There, there's more of an attempt to hide. Uh, with the daily experience of shutdown, lots of shame, lots of self-blame. The executive functioning, um, you know, really kind of thinking clearly and problem solving and all that stuff is, you know, gone or reduced. Um, a feeling of disorientation, not exactly knowing where you are, what day it is. Uh, time sort of gets lost in a way. Very, very lonely experience. Very lonely experience. This seems to be an, an undercurrent. Feeling alone is an undercurrent. You know, with a lot of this stuff, it's over and over again. In, in therapy, the feeling of loneliness comes up many, many times. Um, someone who's in shutdown mode in therapy, they look at the floor a lot. And it's this sort of like, I'm, sure, I'm not sure to describe it. This sort of like dead gaze. It's just like down. And, but every now and then they will look up. And I think it's just, just sort of checking for safety. Doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Um, sometimes not at all. And like I said, it's the internal cold, not an external cold. The pressure on the chest is actually, um, I don't think it's actually pressure. It feels like it. It's experiences pressure. But it's more the heart slowing down significantly. And it feels like pressure. The numbness feeling is, I've heard clients describe it as being a fog or it being cloudy or it being gray. Um, but basically it's this numbness sort of hazy, kind of like foggy experience. Very, very common in therapy. Also very common in therapy is dissociation. And usually clients can be, you know, if I, if I point it out, they can kind of snap out of it. But... Um, in more severe shutdown mode, um, it's not that easy at all. And we really have to kind of take things slower. But yeah, the feeling of loneliness, man, that's, that is a constant, uh, 
And it just seems, it just makes everything worse, that feeling of loneliness. It's a big one. So it, it is possible to come out of the state of shutdown. By the way, if this sounds like depression, uh, if, if you're picking up on that, you're on the right track there. It, it is possible to um, come out of this life threat shutdown mode. Humans don't have a great way to do so. Uh, we, we seem to not have a, a very efficient pathway to get out of shutdown. Wild animals can do it. They literally can kind of shake off the sympathetic energy or the, you know, the, um, they can shake off the energy that, in, of shutdown mode. Sorry, this is confusing. I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself. When you go into shutdown mode, there's there can be, it's parasympathetic energy, but it can be also combined with sympathetic energy if, if it's if you go into shutdown while you're afraid and you're, that's, that's for next time though. But wild animals can basically shake it off. They can literally shake it off and they will return to their herd, their herd and they'll be okay. They don't get traumatized. They shake, they literally shake it off the energy. Um, getting out of this state requires, for human beings, it requires a gentle return of energy. Um, not, it's, you know, do, you can't really do it all at once. It's not something that people snap out of. Um, and I'll talk next time. There's lots of mechanisms that we do to ourselves, not on purpose, of course, but we do it ourselves to kind of keep us in this shutdown state. But, you know, doing small things like walking, this can, can kind of help to bring back some of the energy, get the body moving a little bit, just in small actions. I wouldn't expect this someone in shutdown mode to go do a sprint. I wouldn't, I, that wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that, or to hit a punching bag. But doing a small walk, that, you know, that's it's start off small. Um, things like safe and social cues, like eye contact, um, gentle eye contact, just a little bit, not, not forced, not too intense. Little smiles, just gentle, calm, lots of calm, lots of quiet, lots of patience. These things can kind of help someone come out. Basically, it's, you know, the, the nervous system the, has to feel like it's in a safe environment with safe people. And it takes quite, it can take quite a while to kind of come out of that. But let's say that someone is successfully able to come out of it. We don't just go into safe and social mode. We have to first go all the way up the ladder. So we have to go into flight and fight. Um, it doesn't mean you have to fight someone. It doesn't mean you have to actually run away. But we have to discharge that energy. So as someone comes out of this shutdown life threat and into flight and fight up the ladder, they will experience that sympathetic energy. And that is a sign of danger. And it will send them back down the ladder into... Into, back into the shutdown state. So really slow. You can't rush it. And you really have to kind of build some resiliency in, in, in coming out of it. In, in session, I noticed as I, as I started to do more bodily awareness in session, I started noticing differences in my clients. Um, I, I didn't realize at first what was happening. But there was something that was different about about my clients as I, I mean, I'm just doing like basic body level, bodily awareness sort of stuff, right? Basic stuff. But I started noticing difference. And it was really amazing to witness. It was, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what it was at first. I didn't, I'm like just, like I know that person was able to process their trauma quicker than usual by bringing some bodily awareness to it. Um, they felt more comfortable quicker than usual. 
but there was something else like I was missing. And I think it was noticing when someone was able to come out of shutdown mode and work their way up to being safe and social that there's these changes that that, that they um, they go through. So one example is like there I would notice kids would come into session and their face was just obviously flat affected and everything. But um, it was pale, just super pale. There was no blood pressure. There was no like rosy cheeks. There was no, there was just pale. Like, it was pale face. And by the end of the session, it would change. And I didn't realize what it was. But now I know is their blood pressure is going up. I'm seeing more color in their face. And they're using their facial muscles more. They're making eye contact more. And that's just really amazing to be a part of. Um, cause I can literally see from someone go from this very pale flat affect to at the end of the hour, they're making eye contact, smiling a little bit, sharing, um, conversation with me, laughing uh, with me. And it's just, it's, it's an, it's just absolutely amazing experience. Um, that I don't know if I would get outside of, uh, therapy, honestly, it's, it's pretty, it's just absolute privilege, um, to be a part of that. Like I, I get to be the person and I'm sad it has to be me, but I, I get to be the person that they experience trust and safety with, um, possibly for the first time. Like I in a way then I'm the barometer of what safety is, and that's that's amazing. I've worked with kids who who get to this place of being safe, um all the way up the ladder and I ask them to notice it and they say, I've never felt like this before. And that's sad, but amazing. Um, they say, I've, I've never felt like this before. Uh, you know, they've, they've been alive for 17 years, 16 years, 17 years to not ever, ever felt like that. That's astounding. But, uh, anyhow, so that was just something I noticed, um, in session was that with it, even with just within an hour. Now that doesn't mean that they're cured of the trauma. But what it does mean is that they've been able to experience safe and social mode a little bit. Now we have a reference point, something that we can notice and experience together. And it, now it's a reference point for the future. And the more of those little moments, the, 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 I can start to help them build their resiliency over time but we have to have more and more of those moments of being safe and social and trusting. I'll share an example here um, that happened uh, at work um, of a kid that I saw who was in the freeze mode. Um, I had arrived to a campus and was walking down a corridor. I saw a kid, I think he was like 10 years old maybe. He was laying on the ground. Um, He was just like out. Not unconscious, he was just he was in shutdown mode and above him kind of kneeling over him was the principal of the school. So already off the bat, there is an adult male who has the status of being the principal of the school. So he's the highest level um, status of the school. So, and he's standing over a kid, not in a bad way. Like he's, he was genuinely trying to help very well intentioned. Um, but the kid wasn't responding and the situation in and of itself was kind of stacked against the kid, right? So the kid wasn't responding. He's laying on the concrete in this corridor. Luckily, 
schools in session, so no one's walking by. They're, they had pretty much, you know, it's still a school, but they were there was no one else there, you know, gawking or anything. Um, it's about noon, not lunchtime yet, but the kids should have been in class. I asked if I could help. So I, as I walked up and I said, hey, is, you know, can I help out? And the principal said, yeah. So I got on the floor with the kiss with the student. Um, I was maybe, I don't know, three feet away from him. I just kind of judged it. I felt like it was enough space. And I, I, I gave myself some space from him. Asked how he was doing. Got no response. So I just, and he wasn't unconscious. Um, so I, I just sat, I sat there with him quietly. Uh, after a few minutes, he peeked up to see who I was. And then he looked back down. So he used his eyes. He peeked up just to kind of see who I was and what I was doing there. And he looked back down. But when he looked up, he saw, or he, the whole time he heard, I wasn't saying a whole lot, but he heard a caring voice. When he looked up, he saw a gentle eye contact, um, a slight smile, crinkled my eyes a little bit. That's a, that's a safety cue. Um, I asked him a few more times how he was doing, uh, using a safe voice. Like, hey, how you doing? You, you okay down there? Um, how's it going? You okay? Like that kind of stuff. The goal here wasn't, I wasn't trying to get a response. The goal here was for him to hear that I was a safe person. I was trying to kind of activate his safe and social mode, at least enough. Um, I, I knew he wasn't going to get there right off the bat at all. But I was, I was basically attempting to trigger his safe and social cues. And um, I don't think his ears were attuned to safe and social mammalian voice. But I was kind of trying to bring him there. So, um, anyhow, so I was just, I just wanted him to hear a safe voice. The goal wasn't to get a response, right? But I, so I decided to address some of his basic needs first. So I got out my lunch. I happened to have my lunch with me because I was walking to, uh, to the office. So I got my lunch out, um, and I started to eat apples and I offered him some in a safe and social voice. Of course, he looked up and he shook his head. No. He probably sat there for a minute more, and then I offered him some goldfish, uh, those crackers, which he accepted. Um, he sat up and snacked with me for a little bit. We didn't talk. We just sat there and snacked. Um, by now, the principal had kind of backed up, so it was just, it was just him, him and I sitting there together, and he was sitting up now, um, he, but the principal had kind of backed off. He was on the phone with someone. He had given us some space. I asked the young, young boy, I said, um... I asked him if he was okay again. I think he kind of gave me a little response. I was like, yeah. I told him my name. I asked him what his was, and which he, which he responded. He told me it. So he, he's engaging with me. A campus security monitor had shown up by now, and he was over there talking to the principal. And everyone seemed safe and social, so everyone over there was, was doing fine. Um, the student eventually, after a couple minutes, the student stood up. He put his back against, uh, like it was like a fence. He put his back up against the fence and slowly inched his way toward the principal and the CSM, the campus security monitor. So he was, I, I don't know how to describe it. He had his back against the wall, his palms against the wall, kind of like, it almost looked like he was in trouble, but he wasn't acting that way. And so he like, he like shuffled his way along the wall toward the two uh, um, other adults, the principal and the CSM. And I didn't know what to make of it in the moment, but when I thought back on it, he was using his sympathetic system. He was shuffling his way with these short little burst movements. Um, 
he was shuffling his way over there. He was using his arms and his legs at the same time going toward the principal and the CSM. Uh, and when he got there, he got really close to this CSM. He, and I realized he basically he was looking for physical affection and being close to someone that he trusted. Um, and that showed me that he was moving into safe and social. So he went from shutdown into sympathetic into safe and social. Um, in a pretty short amount of time. And that doesn't mean that his nervous system was, you know, aligned or not aligned, but it doesn't mean he would be in safe and social mode forever and for the rest of his life and that he, you know, he's got a perfectly attuned autonomic nervous system at all. That's not what I'm saying, but for that moment, he was able to get up into safe and social enough. Now, when he got to the CSM, the CSM, well, I love this, he had these cards on his hip that the student, that any student could flip through. To, and these cards would have things like, I need food, with like a picture of food, or I need a hug, or I need a bathroom break. It was just a way for kids to communicate that might not be able to otherwise communicate. I loved it. I thought it was really cool. So this kid went, to, you know, got a little hug from the CSM. Um, the CSM checked in on him. You know, how you doing, man? You okay? And, you know, like you could tell they had, a good, they had a good relationship or enough. The kid wasn't talking much, um, but he, he knew what to do. He went to the cards, and I saw him flipping through them. And I think he went to the one that said hug, I believe. So he got that. He got what he needed, what he needed, um, and I believe it was hug. So now this wasn't the end of the situation, um, but I think it's a good example of a kid that worked through all the stages of the polybagel ladder in a very short amount of time. Um, this The kid, he still defaulted to, his default was sympathetic activation. Day to day, he was more, usually he was more um, elevated. In the, he was more in sympathetic mode. But in that moment, after he got to safe and social, one of his friends came over and they kind of worked each other up a little bit. So, um, yeah, he went back down a little bit into sympathetic activation. And what's sad for him is I don't think he knows how to tolerate being sympathetically activated while being safe and social. So he ended up getting in a little bit of trouble, I think. Now, he didn't really get in trouble, but he was like climbing on something he shouldn't have. Um but, you know, and I've seen that kid later on. I always make sure to say hello. Um, he was, you know, and every time I saw him, sadly, he was usually in some sort of sympathetic arousal, usually outside the classroom, um, kind of getting a little bit of trouble. But, you know, but he got, he, he at least in that, that day, he got to a, a moment of being safe and social, of getting his needs met, of making a safe connection with an adult. Like, that's something, right? Like we, it's, a, it's a reference point now. It's something. And the principal and the CSM got to see him, or the principal especially got to see him uh, go into safe and social mode from being way down at the bottom and shut down. And he got to see me kind of work with him, give him space, get on his level. Um, you know, so he got to see those things. So there was lots of benefits to it. Now, did the, did the principal in the situation do something wrong? No, not at all. It was a normal intervention that maybe another student would have responded to just fine. But in this case, the student, the student in this case did not have access to his safe and social system, which means in that moment, he would not be thinking about things like the importance of school and being in class. He would not be thinking about avoiding being in trouble or using that coping skill he was probably taught in the past. He would not be thinking about problem solving or accepting help from a safe adult. Another kid may have been, or another kid may have had a relationship with that principal that allowed them to respond quicker. Um, but for this kid, 
Um, it just didn't work out that way. So I, I'm, I'm just assuming, I don't know. But the principal was probably saying, hey, you got to go to class and don't you want to pass the class and don't you want to get your lunch period and blah, 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 right? And for any other kid, that may have been fine. But for this kid, it, it's just, it was a non-issue. It just, it was not, he wasn't able to access that level of problem solving and awareness. Um, I learned afterwards that the student came to school that day on his own. And I, I've seen him walk to school on his own or with his brothers. Um, and that basically that day he had just arrived. He had just arrived. And this is like at like noon. He had just gotten to school on his own. He walked. But like, but here's the point. He walked to school on his own. He was like, he was there. This kid should have been in the arms of a parent. You know, he should have been fed and happy. I know I'm saying should have. But he came to school. He could have stayed at home playing video games probably with his brothers. But he came to school. And I just, that, that blew my mind. And um, the amount of empathy I have for that kid is tremendous. Yeah, he arrived late. But he came. And he chose, that just blew me out of the water. He chose to come to school. So even if the principal was able to talk to him into going to class, let's say it worked. And he's like, fine, I'll go to class. Would the kid have been in a place to learn? No, not even close. That kid was not even close to being in a spot to be able to sit in class, focus on the teacher, um, filter out distractions, learn, retain information, not even close. So even if the principal had convinced the kid to go to class, and it just, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. He, he probably came to school to get his basic needs and safety met. He probably, like that just, he, that's probably why he was at school, to get his basic needs met, you know? And he just doesn't know how to communicate that. He has no idea. I don't know. I, th- I think it's a good example of going from shutdown to, um, to safety mode. I see this in therapy um, actually pretty frequently now. And there's some kids that are so dissociative that, we don't get to safe and social mode every single time. Um, but there, you know, there's, if, if I can, sometimes what we'll do is I'll ask them, how much are you in your body right now? And, and they'll be able to respond, you know, 25%, 50% um, versus, you know, I'm 75% out of my body. If there's, there's sessions where it goes from, you know, it starts off at I'm 25% of my body. If we can get to 35% for that one kid, that's an improvement. Um, and just, you know, going into safe and social mode and expecting that to happen for that one kid might not be realistic. It's always my hope uh, and a goal. But, um, but you know, that's something I've had to remind myself is patience, 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 uh, lots of gentle interventions, lots of safe, calm, quiet interventions. Um, when those kids walk into your therapy room, you know, talking about, you know, why were you in school yesterday? Please forget about it. Or, uh, hey, you know, I've noticed you haven't been turning work in. It's, it's, just, it's, a not, it's not important. It's not, it's not at the top of their priority list because there probably is no priority list. It's, um, they're so dissociative, uh, like they're not even in their body. They're not, they don't feel safe whatsoever. And, and, you know, we're talking about homework? No, nah, forget about it. So... My goal with these kids is um, to be that safe person um, and to really look for those moments where their eyes look up and they're looking for that safe contact. 
and to build from there. That's that's kind of that's my goal. So hey, thank you so much for listening to uh, to this episode. I hope it brought you some value. If you have a question about anything, um, I'd love to hear it and maybe address it in a future episode. Feel free to contact me. There are some links in the description uh, for you know if if this triggers something within you and you need you're like in a crisis mode. I'm going to have something for you at the bottom. Um, So please take care of yourself. Contact someone if you need to. Yeah, thanks again for listening. I I, I do appreciate it. Mm